0: Let us pray. Father, you have given us all scripture for our learning. And so we now pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this, your holy word, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. I was in a coffee shop just the other day, and the guy in front of me paid for my cup of coffee because he recognized that I was a pastor. Now, i tell you, I've been in Texas almost seven years, and that still feels strange to me. Because you got to remember where I came from, coming from Canada, coming from a very secularized context. Where I come from, I've been recognized as a pastor and had people cross to the other side of the street. I've had families in restaurants, no joke, asked to move tables because they were across from my table. I have been shouted at in public, sworn at on the street, I have been spat upon because I was recognized as a pastor. Now, I don't share this as some kind of prideful moment of look at what I've gone through for the gospel, nor do I share it for a pity party. I share it somewhat prophetically because that world is closer to you here than you may realize. This world is coming upon us more and more. And the question that I want to look at with you this morning is, how shall we live in a world that is increasingly rioting against the gospel? How shall we live in a world that is increasingly rioting against Jesus? How do we live in a world that is increasingly rioting against the church? Well, if you turn with me to Acts chapter 19, we come now to the riot in Ephesus This is a big moment in the book of Acts, Acts 19, beginning at verse 33. And here, friends, we find hope for how we can live in an increasingly rioting world, a world that is rioting against the gospel. See, Luke writes in Acts chapter 19, verse 23, that about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who built silver shrines for Artemis, brought no little business for the craftsmen. He gathered them together along with workers of similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in nearly all of Asia, this Paul is persuading and turning aside a great many people, saying that gods made by hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that our trade may come into disrepute, but that the temple of the great goddess Artemis might be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed of her magnificence, she who was worshipped throughout Asia and the world. Now, when they heard this, They were furious and cried out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they rushed together. And so the city was thrown into confusion. They rushed into the theater, grabbing Gaius and Aristarchus, who were traveling companions of Paul. Paul wanted to go in among the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, the officials in town, urged him not to venture into the theater. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. See, in this riot in Ephesus here in Acts chapter 19, we find good news. How do we live? How shall we live in the face of a world that is increasingly rioting against the gospel? And I think what we see here is great hope that we shall live with a quiet, humble confidence. Why? Well, if we were remember these three things, three things that we see here in Acts 19. We will be able to live in this increasingly riotous world against the gospel with confidence if we remember these three things. First, Jesus will clash with culture. Jesus will inevitably clash with culture. But not only that, that's not just an external reality. Jesus is also going to be confronting our own commitments. This is not an external issue. This is also an internal issue inside each and every one of us. Jesus clashing with culture. Jesus confronting each and every one of our own commitments But here's the good news. All of this is done. All of this clashing with culture and confronting of our own commitments is done within the reality that Jesus is the conquering king. This is not a hope. This is not just a wishful thinking reality. Well, we hope Jesus wins. This is done in the context of a victory. He is the conquering king. He will surely do it. See, Our confidence begins here, remembering first that Jesus will inevitably clash with the culture. Look at verse 23. We're told that the way, Christianity, the disciples have become a disturbance. They've become a disturbing presence in Ephesus. But not only that, verse 26, they become a danger. This faith is suddenly dangerous. Now, it's interesting when you unpack what's happening here is the danger is cited by Demetrius. He's saying, listen, our trade is going to be disreputed, The temple is going to be disregarded. And even the towering gods of our culture are going to be deposed. Right. This is why they riot because they're reacting against a gospel, a word of news that has come into the world and is upsetting their culture. It is attacking and calling into question things that they've held dear. Now I know, we live in polite society today. You may well say, "Well, that's not very nice." I mean. In polite society, are we supposed to be messing around with other people's culture? I mean, shouldn't we just embrace other cultures and, and say, hey, thumbs up, you do you and we'll do us? And and that's sort of the affirmation of culture. I don't know about you, but I watched way too much Star Trek. And, and, and I, though I love this series, the problem is underneath a lot of Star Trek. For those of you who watch either the old series or any of the new series, is there's this concept in Star Trek about the so-called Prime Directive? Don't mess around with any of these alien cultures as you're out in your starship interacting. The truth of the gospel is the gospel will mess with every single culture it encounters. It must, it must appropriately clash with every culture. Yes, that which is true will be preserved, but that which is not true must be transformed. See, put it this way. If you don't like the fact that Jesus coming into the world clashes with culture, then you don't really know who Jesus is. Remember back in Acts 17, verse six, what did the Thessalonians say about the church? They said, these men are turning the world upside down. Right, again, it's that sense of disturbance. Disturbance. It's this cultural clash. But there's a specific thing they say about how they're turning the world upside down. Acts 17, verse six says, these men are turning up the world upside down. They're disregarding Caesar and proclaiming another king, Jesus. See, underneath this clash of cultures, the fact that the gospel that Paul has been proclaiming is the gospel of the coming king. This is the one who is king of kings, who will rule over all. You know, when we look at Jesus Christ, you know that Christ is not his last name. It's his title. The minute you say the words Jesus Christ, you're saying Jesus the King, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed one over all. This is the Jesus who comes into the world as king. And in fact, I'll tell you, one of the greatest ways you can think of the whole arc of scripture, from Genesis through to Revelation, all 66 books, if you wanna sort of sum it up, is to think about it as a kingship story, right? You know my background as a retired stage actor. Think of it like a six-act play. And the six acts are all about kingship. Act one begins in Genesis, Genesis chapter one, with the king establishing his kingdom. But act two quickly follows in Genesis three with the rebellion against the king, Act three begins in chapter 12, as God calls Abraham, and Israel emerges as the king's people in this world, living the king's way in this rebellious world. Acts chapter 4, Act 4, Acts chapter 4, and we're in Acts. This is not a great rhetorical thing to be using Act and Acts in the same sermon. But Act 4 is the coming king. The king comes and saves. I mean, what is spoken of his birth in Isaiah chapter nine but that the government shall be on his shoulders and he shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end and he will reign. This is the picture of the one who comes as king into the world and through his death, his resurrection, and then his ascension, which is his enthronement as king of the cosmos, We move into act five, and act five is the church being ambassadors for the king. The church in scene one, act five, scene one is the book of Acts. Act five, scene two is what we're living in now, continuing to be ambassadors for the king in this world. And then finally, yes, for the Tolkien fans, act six, the return of the king. This is the Ark of the entire biblical story. And when we look at it that way, when we see this has all been about who is king and how will we respond to the king, all of a sudden we we, we understand those words that emerge in praise. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. But that's actually a little too personalized. My soul, my life, my all. Love this amazing demands my city, demands my country, demands my culture because ultimately it's demanding the entirety of the cosmos to come in obedience and worship the king. This is what Abraham Kuypers meant, the Dutch theologian, when he said, there is not one square inch in the entirety of the human condition, the human experience over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. See, this is where the clash with our culture comes, is the king has come. And as he asserts his kingship, all of our other kings, we'll get there in point two, all of our other kings must fall aside. It's interesting, being in Ottawa for many years, we were right in the downtown of the national capital and we had lots of embassies around us. In fact, uh, even on the same block the church was, we had several embassies. And what happens in Ottawa, if you were uh, an ambassador, you get the diplomatic immunity, which in a national capital city gives you a red license plate. Now these red license plates are magic because you can't be pulled over, diplomatic immunity, you can't get a parking ticket because of diplomatic immunity. You can't get towed because of diplomatic immunity. Now we would have funeral processions arriving at the church and there would be our alley full of multiple vehicles with red plates and there was nothing we could do because they were all ambassadors vehicles and we couldn't even call the police. Now I remember at one of these times when I was rather frustrated and thinking, you know what I think? We all as Christians should get red plates. Because if we're honest, we are nothing less than ambassadors for another kingdom. We live in our culture, we live in our nation, we live in our city, but we live as ambassadors of another kingdom. And frankly, if we're gonna get kicked around for the gospel, I frankly would like to get no parking tickets in the meantime. (laughs) The inevitability of Christ clashing with culture that's why Peter says in First Peter chapter four, "Do not be surprised, beloved, at the fiery trial that comes upon you, as if something strange were happening to you. It's not strange, it's inevitable. The king has come, and all cultures must give way But. It would be easy to stop there. You've heard sermons like this, right? Oh, the problem is out there in the world. You know, All those people who don't know the Lord, You know, they've just got to conform to Jesus. Well, guess what? Conformity has to happen right here inside the church and inside each and every one of us. The reality of the King coming is we proclaim Jesus in this world, he's not just gonna clash with culture, he's gonna confront our own commitments. He's gonna question in our own hearts those things which we've given our own allegiance to. You know, it's very interesting when you look at the riot in Ephesus here in Acts chapter 19 that it's not really patriotism that drives the riot, it's personal ambition. I mean, Demetrius wants to make it sound very patriotic. Like we're very concerned about, you know, the temple of Artemis and, and, and that Artemis doesn't get sort of overthrown and what's this doing to our city? But in verse 25, before he says anything else, you really get the nugget behind it all. He says to the craftsmen, to the artisans, to these silversmiths who are suddenly selling less and less idols because the gospel is saying you can't buy and worship these idols. He says to them, he says, "Men, you know, that from this trade, from this profession, from this business, we have our wealth. I mean, that's the root so often underneath all of our riotous culture against Christ in our world, is you boil it down to a deep concern, less about Artemis as much as affluence, They're less concerned about the culture of Ephesus. They're concerned about how comfortable they are in Ephesus. They're less concerned about the overthrowing of shrines. They're concerned about their own personal security. See, what Paul is doing is coming in with the gospel and he's doing in this city what he does in every city. And we still do today. When we proclaim the gospel, we are denouncing idolatry. We're denouncing all things that would pull us away from a singular devotion to Christ Jesus as King. Now, we often think of idols like these little statues that Demetrius is making, right? Verse 27, he says, uh, you know, he, Paul's going around telling everyone that gods made by hands are not gods. Well, that's true. But that's not exactly, again, why they're rioting. They're rioting about something much deeper within them. There are idols within each and every one of us that are not little statues, but our worldviews, our commitments, things that make us feel safe, things that make us feel strong, things that make us feel secure, And each one of these things, we place them above our allegiance to Christ. They've got a name. It's called an idol. And it needs to be confronted. I love that in our our catechism, if you don't have copies of this, it's available in the bookstore, To Be a Christian. This is our uh, catechism within the Anglican Church in North America. It's edited, the general editor is uh, J.I. Packer. And for those of you who know J.I. Packer, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, who died just a few years ago, uh, was a dear friend and professor of mine and such a mentor to so many. Packer always wanted to write a systematic theology, you know, like a deep theological treatise on all the aspects of Christianity. He taught it, but he never wrote his own systematic theology. Instead, Packer being a good churchman, his final work was a catechism for the church, for the people of God. And it's full of questions. In fact, there's 370 or 300 and something questions. So you can literally get a copy of this and every day of the year, you could read one question out of the catechism and just think about that for the day. It's brilliant. But here on idols, in, and there's an index by the way, if you're looking for topics like idols, you can look it up. Question number 279 in the catechism. Are idols always images? Are they always little like statues? No, the catechism says, anything can become an idol if I look to it for salvation or comfort amid my circumstances. If I place my ultimate hope in anything but God, that is an idol. Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, verse 24, that no one can serve two masters. He will either love the one and hate the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he says this, he says, you cannot serve God and mammon. Now that word mammon can be translated in multiple ways. It's interesting in most of our English Bibles, it's simply translated as you cannot serve God and money. Because the truth is, the idol beneath so many of the idols in our lives often does come back to money, to our sense of security, to our possessions. And the truth is, here's the good news, is as God confronts that idol, our just absolute determination to rest in our possessions, to rest in our assurance that we have enough or we've provided enough for ourselves, God will come in and confront that and cure it. And he does it, in fact, through the liturgy uh, every week. I love the fact, you'll notice uh, every week when we come to the moment of offering right in the service just before communion the moment of offering now whether you are putting offerings in the basket or whether you're giving online the point is we have a moment every sunday where before the offering is collected we state something we we state these words from first chronicles chapter 29 and what we're doing here is affirming who the king is we're affirming who is truly lord in this life And so we say, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. All things come from you, O Lord. And then we say, and of your own have we given you, amen. We're affirming the lordship of Christ and then having him in that moment yet again put that idol of money to death in us. You affirm his lordship and that idol is on shaky ground. Now, some people may say, man, you say that every Sunday. Couldn't you mix up the words and do something different every Sunday? And my response is, we'll just keep praying that prayer every Sunday until all the mammon is out of this room, all right? So, so the day that we get there, we can pray something else. But I guess for at least for now, for a while, we're gonna keep praying that prayer because I'll tell you, every week, we need to be convicted again of the mammon and the idols that are brewing in our lives. John Calvin said the human imagination is an idol factory. We have an incredible ability to find new idols to give ourselves to. It's one of the reasons why I love, out of so many celebrations and feast days through the year, I love Palm Sunday. You know, on Palm Sunday where we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and we have palm branches and we sing hosannas and there's the procession and all the pageantry. Here's what I love about it, is that it's a great picture, not just of that first triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It is that. But it's actually a picture for you and I of the entry that Jesus makes into every city and into every home and every human life. When Jesus comes into any city or any home or any human life, he comes in the same as he did at that triumphal entry. He does not come in quietly. He doesn't sneak into our cities or our homes and our lives. No, he comes in triumphal procession, declaring one thing, behold your king. This is what Jesus does as he comes into our life. He declares who he is, I am your king. As Isaiah 45 verse 5 says, I am the Lord, there is no other. See friends, we need to hold these two things together, recognizing an increasingly riotous response against the gospel in our world. The inevitability that Christ will clash with culture and the inevitability that he is going to be confronting our own commitments again and again, week after week. But all of this is done, thanks be to God. Finally, in the third thing we need to remember, oh, here's where the confidence comes. This work, this clashing with culture to reform it, this confronting our commitments to transform us is all done under the purview of this is the conquering king. This is the king who has conquered, is conquering and finally completely will have conquered in the end. And of that we are assured. Do you notice at the end of the story, verse 30 and 31, Paul desperately wants to go into that theater. He wants to go in and have a word with that crowd that's going nuts, shouting great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But what happens? The church says no, Paul. The disciples say, don't go in there. And even some of the Asiarchs, the officials of town who know Paul say, Paul, don't go in there. And here's what I love, Paul doesn't go. He's told, don't go in there, he wants to go. And you notice Paul doesn't pitch a fit. I mean, if it was me, I'd kind of pitch a fit. I'd be like, come on, I wanna go in there. Paul doesn't pitch a fit. He he receives it, he says, fine, there's a big, massive, you know, that that theater seats 25,000 people. Can you imagine hearing them for two hours, as verse 38 says? Two hours screaming great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Paul so badly wants to go in there, but he doesn't, why? Because Paul has the confidence to know that Jesus Christ is working in that theater whether he goes in there or not. Jesus Christ is working in that theater in that moment whether Paul goes in there or not, why? Because he has spoken the gospel over that community and that gospel is a gospel of a conquering king. Paul is confident knowing that Christ Jesus has conquered. It's what Paul does in every town he goes to. What does he preach? He preaches the resurrection. Everywhere he goes, he's coming back to the resurrection. In every town, in every situation, it comes back to the resurrection. Why? Because the resurrection is the proof that this is the conquering king. Paul said it back in Athens. Remember the Athenians? What does he say in Acts chapter 17, verse 31? He's talking again about idolatry. And then what does he say? He just radically shifts modes and says, The days of ignorance God overlooked, but now he has called all people everywhere to repent, for he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he's given assurance by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is the declaration over the cosmos, this is your king. And so we preach the resurrection we believe the resurrection. We confess in our creed week after week the resurrection. And in doing so, we are preaching and confessing the conquering nature of this king. He is the one who will win it all. In the, 1 Corinthians 15, that beautiful resurrection passage, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says in verse 26, he says, Jesus must reign until he's put every enemy under his feet. And then he says, the last enemy to be defeated is death. Jesus has overcome. That's what the resurrection declares. Jesus has conquered. And knowing this, we live into the reality of this clash of cultures and this, this, this confrontation of our commitments that it's all done not with a wish and a hope and maybe it'll work, but it's done by the one who's already overcome the final enemy. Jesus is victorious. Jesus has conquered. Jesus is risen. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. It's the reason on Easter morning we sing about the conquering that is associated with the resurrection. Thine be the glory, the glory, Risen conquering son, endless is the victory thou or death hath won. I don't know why I'm singing twice in this sermon. I must be in a particular mood. My children are gonna talk to me all about this over lunch. (laughs) But this is the victory that's been won for us because he has conquered. It's fascinating. I went to Ephesus a few years ago. Many of you have been in Ephesus, walked through the ruins. It's actually a pretty amazing city because as ruins, it's a huge city of ruins. I mean, you go to Corinth and Philippi and they're kind of like just a few little pieces left over. Ephesus is still a city. I mean, you walk down those streets and you feel like, wow, this is an ancient city. And that, that, that theater is still there, 25,000 seat. I mean, you can just imagine two hours of them screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But then you come to the great temple of Artemis. And here's what's fascinating, the great temple of Artemis. In its day, 127 columns, twice as large as any other Greek temple. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You stand in front of the great temple of Artemis today and there is nothing left but a single column barely standing. because Jesus is the one who conquers and has conquered and finally will fully conquer his kingdom. I like how John Stott says of this crowd yelling and screaming inside that theater. He says, you know, at the end of the day, all those pagans could do in that theater against Paul and his gospel was simply yell themselves hoarse. Because the truth is, Revelation chapter 19, verse six, what we cry out again and again, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. How shall we, friends, live in a world that is increasingly rioting against the gospel? How shall we live in a world that is increasingly rioting against the church and against our Christ? I want to close with these words from Tolkien. I didn't quote Narnia today, so I have to quote Tolkien. There's that moment where Frodo says to Gandalf, speaking just of the challenge it is to live in the time we're living you know you're saying lord why did it have to be my generation why did secularization have to take over my culture like when i'm living and i like how frodo says to gandalf i wish it need not have happened in my time and gandalf says so do i and so do all who live to see such times But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. What will we do with this time that has been given to us? Well, if we believe the words of Acts chapter 19 and the riot in Ephesus, in this time given to us, friends, we can live with confidence, humble, quiet, Sustained confidence. If we remember these three things, that the inevitability that Christ clashes with culture is a reality, this is going to happen. And it's part of his reign. And the inevitability that he will be confronting our commitments again and again, get used to it. Each time you walk into this room and every time you get on your knees in prayer through the week, he is doing that work of confronting your commitments. Because he's curing you. And all this work, the clashing of culture to reform it, the confronting of our commitments is all done with the foundation and the knowledge and the truth that he has conquered. He is the conquering king. He will surely do it. This is how we live in this world. We live with our eyes fixed on the risen and reigning Christ. And we put our trust and our hope in him and Him alone. O oh Lord Jesus, King Jesus, come afresh into our lives this day. Help us to embrace your kingly rule in our culture and in our own hearts, that we may see in our days again and again that you have conquered, for you reign.